following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I have wrestled with this sermon for weeks now and come to you uh, asking you to do some work with me, uh, not just now, but after the event here, because we are asking questions about some of the most uh, challenging portions of Scripture in the Old Testament. This uh, morning, a passage from Joshua, but I'm thrilled that you're doing a series on Exodus, and uh, much of what I have to say today will uh, certainly re-emerge when you study Exodus, particularly chapter 15 uh, and the Song of the Warrior Uh, there uh, where the Lord, the holy warrior, is celebrated. Um, But we are facing a crisis in confidence uh, concerning Scripture. Uh, There are many crises in our lives, and you've spoken about some of them this morning. Some of our crises are relational, and some are financial, and some are related to employment, and some are related to other aspects of our world, our health, our family, etc., But a crisis that is uh, fundamental to our cultural era is a crisis in confidence about what we know, about what we can be clear about. And for Christians, that crisis runs uh, into the scriptures. How confident are we about the Bible and about what God says in scripture? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Can we have the, uh, the overhead up? Uh, and I want to start by referencing Chris Wright, who has written a book recently, a few years ago now, called The God I Don't Understand, Reflections on Tough Questions of Faith. And in that book, Chris Wright uh, says, it seems to me that the older I get, the less I really understand God. Which is not to say that I don't love and trust him. On the contrary, as life goes on, my love and trust grow deeper, but my struggle with what God does or allows grows deeper too. Wright goes on to say, while my love for the Lord and my gratitude and faith are daily strengthened through his rich blessings, the questions remain and the lack of understanding assumes sharper contours. Why, Lord, and how long, O Lord, seem to float more frequently to the surface of one's daily conversation with God. This is not a theoretical issue. It's deeply personal for Chris. It's deeply personal for all of us, I trust, as we read scripture in the light of the struggles in our own lives and in the light of a violent and cruel world in which we live. And furthermore, in the light of rigorous attacks on the Bible and Christian faith, to which we must respond if we seek to be evangelists for the gospel of Jesus. We can all go quiet, have our holy huddles, sit on the edge of a secular world in this country, or we can with confidence find our voice and speak to the scriptures and the gospel with our commitment. It's one or the other, and I trust today contributes something to our commitment to speak up. So I want to read uh, a couple of verses of the Bible. This is probably not a passage you've heard preached on before. And if, if not, it should have been preached on before. If you've done Joshua, 
We're in chapter 10, verse 28. Just three verses today. Joshua 10, 28 through to 30. That day, Joshua took Makedah. He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors. And he did to the king of Makedah as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makedah to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. He did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Nothing much here for our quiet time, right? Nothing much here to, uh, to encourage our faith uh, for daily living in our 21st century world. But something here that is incredibly important because the question, what is God like, who is God and why should we trust him, comes to the surface in any portion of scripture, this one as much as others. So let me say pretty bluntly what this passage of scripture teaches. It teaches that in this era of history, when Israel took the land of Canaan, and the language of took and take is there, that under the command of God, according to Scripture, they put cities like Makedah to the sword. The language here is that the city was captured, the king was killed, and the people were exterminated. None were left alive is the phrase in Scripture. And there's a particular word in the Hebrew language, cherem, which is used here and throughout these passages, which speaks about consecrating to judgment a people, consecrating to judgment, handing over to God a people, uh, banning a people, uh, and it's often uh, translated in the NIV anyway, uh, totally destroying a people. This is what happened in Makedah. City, king and people were placed under Hiram, under the ban, consecrated to God for judgment and destruction, total destruction. And then we're told that uh, they went to Libna and did the same thing. And on this occasion, the language is the Lord gave it and its king into Israel's hand. And then we're told that just like Jericho, Makedah, Libna, Lachish, and all the cities of Canaan that Israel invaded. Here is a map, and you can't see it well, but the shaded in uh, golden colour, the shaded towns there are the ones mentioned in Joshua, and you can see from north to south that these cities, uh, like Libna, like Lachish, these were attacked, captured, put to the sword, and the people there were destroyed. These passages of Scripture have been coming under increasing attack in recent time. In fact, it's the biggest issue, I think, in the world of theological authorship at the present time. The language used in Scripture is extravagant, took, put to the sword, totally destroyed, massacred, no survivors, captured, holy curse. This is the language 
of translation in Joshua. What are we to do with narratives like these? What are we to make of this portrayal of God? How do we make sense of it? The trustworthiness of Scripture, the goodness of God, and the truth of Christian faith are under fierce attack in our world currently. And not only from those outside the faith, the so-called new atheists, but also from within the church, Christian theologians and authors who are seeking to read Scripture well and understand God as a God of love and Christian faith as for human flourishing are challenging passages of Scripture such as these. Now we can decide not to read them any longer or not to talk about them or we can address these with some courage and clarity and in the book of Exodus you will be doing so and I hope to do so this morning. In a recent book entitled The Bible Tells Me So, theologian Peter Enns points out that in the past 100 years the estimates of the number of dead from just six of the best-known ideologically driven genocides, he's speaking about Armenia, the Holocaust, the Soviet famine, Cambodia, Rwanda and Darfur, range from somewhere above 10.7 million people to something up to 27 million people slaughtered in ideologically driven genocides. Peter Enns provocatively calls his book, The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It, and he then writes, To call for the extermination of a group of people defined by their culture and religion, to grab their land and stuff, and to justify it by saying, God told you to do it because those people are impure, dirty, worthy, and only worthy of death. Well, we've seen this up close in recent history. In much stronger language, Richard Dawkins, as one of the so-called New Atheists, has written about this story of the killing of the Canaanites in Joshua, the passage that we've just read, as an ethnic cleansing in which bloodthirsty massacres were carried out with xenophobic relish under God's command. Joshua's destruction of Jericho, Machedar, Libna, Lachish, etc., he writes, are morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. This is, he claims, one reason why religion is the root of all evil. Peter Enns, a Christian theologian, arrives at the following conclusion about the Bible. To move forward, he says, we need to look at the Canaanite issue from a different and perhaps very new angle. And here it is. God never told the Israelites to kill the Canaanites. The Israelites believed God told them to do it. What most everybody is certain about, however, is that the Bible's version of events is not what happened. And that puts the question, 
How could God have all those Canaanites put to death in a different light? Indeed, he didn't. You want to send your kids to theological study? You better choose a college where the lecturers believe that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. (laughs) But Peter ends is still raising some troubling issues that we need to address. And so this morning in the time that we have, I want to give you six, I think, crucial responses to the challenge that is being mounted to the Old Testament. In seeking to answer the question, how are we to interpret the Bible? Is it authoritative and true? And who is this God in whom we trust? Is God good and loving? And what is the message we proclaim? Is it a message of hope? Those questions are the ones I hope to touch on. But what I want to say will leave you with a whole lot of work to do. So as Reuben has already encouraged you, go on home, listen to Exodus 1 to 20, read it, start to gather your resources, come to the church in the next weeks and months and engage in the questions because this is not theoretical. This finally undoes the gospel. It finally undoes confidence in scripture if we will not address these issues. So I know that we want to be encouraged when we come to church. What I want to do this morning, I guess, is encourage you to be confident about scripture by addressing this issue. So here are my six points. The first one in seeking to understand God is that as readers of scripture, as the written word of God, we need to be deeply interested in its stories, not merely individual texts and not only its principles and values. This is a crisis in the way we're reading the Bible. We've spoken about it here before and I know you're addressing it as a church. But the story of Makadar's destruction or Jericho's destruction or Libna's destruction... These ought to be as well known and widely read and preached on by Christians as are the stories of Luke or Philippians or Hebrews. We need to be as confident about these stories as we are the stories of Jesus. How is this account of the destruction of Makedar true? What is the relationship between the text written and the events of history that occurred, but which we know have no longer have access to except through this text. What is the relationship of the story being told to the event that occurred? We all know, and it's true, isn't it, that when a storyteller speaks, an interpretation of an event, a selection of Detail occurs. What are the biblical authors trying to do when they tell the stories of Makedar? That question impacts the way you'll read the flood, the creation, the exodus, the resurrection of Jesus. 
If you don't want to ask that question, then you will not read the Bible well. This is one reason why we've got to have more people studying biblical and theological studies because these aren't easily answered questions and the church needs to lift its conversation. If we hope to proclaim the good news of Jesus with confidence, our generation must be filled with the testimony of Christians who are deeply interested in the biblical stories of Makedah and Libnah and Lachish as much as Exodus, flood and creation. Our generation is increasingly interested in story, but increasingly unsure about the meaning of story. And this will affect the way we preach and read and teach and evangelize. So it is our responsibility to do this well. The first point, as readers of Scripture, we must be deeply interested in the stories being told, not merely extracting principles and values, because finally they are embedded in these stories. My second point, the events of Joshua are neither the beginning or end of Scripture. They must be understood within the overarching frame of creation, fall, God's covenant commitment to bless all nations throughout the world through Israel and the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and outpouring of the Holy Spirit to bless all nations of the world. The scriptures begin with the promise of blessing and end with a promise of blessing. At the high points of scripture, there is a God who is promising blessing to all nations, including Canaanites. These texts in Joshua are not the beginning of the story, nor the end. But perhaps the scriptures are merely a random collection of literary works. Perhaps they don't cohere in an overarching account of God at work in history. Perhaps the Bible is internally contradictory or literarily chaotic. Perhaps it doesn't present a consistent God with an unchanging character. Perhaps not. Will you argue otherwise? Because some of the theology coming out of the present time will argue that, that the Bible has contradictory narratives that there's more than one narrative shaped to Scripture and they can't be reconciled or resolved. That God behaves in one way here and another way there because it's not a consistent portrayal of God. And you can't trust some of the Scripture as much as you can trust other parts. Is that what you believe? If we hold to an understanding of the inspiration of the Bible of God as authoring scripture through the agency of the Holy Spirit in the lives of human authors, then we need to hold that there is something bigger inside this framework of blessing that is coherent, that does include Canaanite peoples, that God is behaving faithfully. And when scripture says that the Lord 
does not change, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. It's speaking about his character and his covenant commitment and his faithfulness to promise. If we argue that, then we will see these events as events we can make sense of inside a larger frame of blessing. So my point number three. As part of the complete story of Scripture, God did tell Israel to invade and conquer the land in which the Canaanites were living. He did. And so I have to part ways with Peter Enns at this point. And as we seek to understand Scripture, we must interpret these texts, but we are not at liberty to rework them so that they tell a different story. When we read Scripture, we are always responsible to interpret. None of us come to the Bible neutrally. None of us can get to the scripts of Scripture, the texts of Scripture, without doing the work of interpretation. It's a myth to say, I just read the Bible as it is. None of us do. We read it in relationship with the Spirit of God, with the community of the church, in our time and place, in the face of tradition, trusting the authority of the text, with language and culture impinging in all sorts of ways. We are responsible to do this well, as well as we can, humbly, faithfully, prayerfully, in community with all the tools at our disposal. But we are not at liberty to take the story of Scripture and make it another story because we don't agree with it. We are, <laughs> we are under the text, not over it. The Lord is over the text. We read it as humble servants of God to be instructed. There is a point where faithful, responsive engagement with text becomes careless and irresponsible. Where faithful interpretation becomes fanciful imagination. And we dare not cross that line and we will only stay in the faithful interpretation area as we work together in prayer and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter Enns and others who've written material recently probably don't believe that they have crossed a line from faithful interpretation to fanciful imagination. I believe they have. But I put my view out, as he does, for critique. And so I expect voices to come back, as no doubt they are to him. And if we love the Lord and seek to be faithful to the Lord, we're open to that critique. My fourth point. The invasion of Canaan is presented in Scripture as a one-off historical event 
in God's dealings with Israel and the world. It is not a prototype for other historical land invasions, genocides or other such violent acts. You can't just lift this story and say, see what God did then. He's doing the same thing now. I'm arguing that what God did then was a one-off, unrepeatable, unique, historical event in its time and place connected to the Exodus and subsequently the exile and subsequently the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is not a prototype for subsequent historical land invasions. I'm wanting to say that there's something unique going on here. And what is that uniqueness? In summary, God was bringing heaven to earth in Canaan, coming to dwell there as he dwells in heaven, setting up his holy throne in the dirt of that land and inviting his people to huddle around him in a holy community, the like of which had never been seen before. And it was a land inhabited by idols and demons and the worship of other gods. And the Lord was coming to set up his holy presence and all who recognized Yahweh as Lord were welcome to live there with him in peace. However, those who served idol gods who did not live there as worshippers of Yahweh came under God's judgment if they chose to stay in that land. And it could not have been otherwise unless you do away with a theology of holiness. This was a one-off moment in the history of God's dealings with the world. It's not a prototype for other invasions or genocides. And it is not possible or in keeping with the scriptures to compare this conquering of the land of Canaan with the Nazi Holocaust or other invasions in recent history. It was a one-off historical event that first of all must be understood in the light of the cross before anything else. And fifthly, these events must be understood as acts of judgment, acts of divine justice. They incorporate both mercy and judgment by a holy God establishing his holy presence in Canaan. Yes, there is judgment here and there is mercy. And so the story of Rahab and her family in Joshua 1 to 6, a Canaanite woman who seeks Yahweh as her Lord and marries into the family of the Messiah and becomes a hero of the faith for New Testament authors, Canaanite woman, Rahab the prostitute, this is a mercy story in the midst of judgment stories which must also be told. Acts of judgment are evident throughout Scripture and they include not just judgment on Canaanites but judgment against Israel as well when it is, biblical language, vomited out of the land at the time of exile 
for behaving like the Canaanites were behaving and worshipping idol gods. Critics of these passages of scripture in Joshua condemn them as violent stories. They condemn God as a violent God. They condemn God's laws as violent laws, not keeping in keeping with love. They condemn the people of Israel as perpetrated as violence. It's under the framework of violence that they are being critiqued. But these events must, first of all, be understood not in terms of violence, but in terms of judgment. They are acts of divine justice by a God whose judgments, as revealed in Scripture, are worked out within history as well as at the end of history. And let me say this, if theologically you want to get rid of these stories, the inevitable consequence is that you also need to get rid of final judgment and theology around hell. You can't have that if you don't have this. And we have got many examples, both in the Old and New Testament, where Scripture tells us God works out his purposes of judgment in history as well as at the end of history. What are we to do, for example, with the New Testament story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 where a death sentence is brought against lying members of the church? Are we to say, oh, well, God didn't do that either? And what about, very relevant for this morning uh, at church here, what about 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul writes, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves, and that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have died. If we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not have come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. What do you do with a passage like that in 1 Corinthians 11? Does God still behave in ways of divine judgment? According to the New Testament scriptures, absolutely so. Do we see these as violent acts or as acts of divine justice? They are acts of divine justice. We've got to talk out of judgment before we try to deal with issues of violence. And finally, my sixth point. God continues to exercise divine justice on sinful humanity in many other ways throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Finally, the scriptures speak of eternal judgment in terms of heaven and hell, and this is an essential part of the story of salvation in Christ. Such events are fully in keeping with the character of God as it is revealed in Scripture, culminating in the person of Jesus, 
who Hebrews describes as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus and salvation in Christ is the point of the story, the goal to which the Old Testament scriptures are always reaching. The cross, the resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, blessings on all peoples throughout the world, these are the great events that we proclaim in Scripture. However, judgment for those outside of Christ is also a crucial final word in the New Testament Scriptures. And such judgment is not to be understood in a framework of violence, rather a framework of holy justice. And so we read in the final book of Scripture, Revelation 20, verses 11 and following. And now I'm becoming an evangelist as I finish. Then I saw a great white throne... And him who was seated upon it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And all whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into a lake of fire. This is... The third last chapter of scripture. All whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. Last year, the year before, I studied the book of Jude for a long period of time. One of Jude's main complaints against the false teachers of his era was that they had stopped believing in judgment. They believed that there was no judgment And so their acts of careless and immoral behaviour would go unpunished. They didn't care about grace being utilised for careless, carefree human living. Judgment is an essential part of the story of the gospel. And so I leave you with those six points, but I am now bound to leave you with a challenge to turn to Jesus because Makedah, Joshua 10, is not an irrelevant passage. It's part of this story which says, humans, you want to live in the world and the world to come with a holy God? Then you need to turn to Jesus. If you don't turn to Jesus, there is a judgment, a loss of life, a separation, a darkness, an exclusion from the world to come. And I'm amazed that as I prayed about this message from Joshua 10 and Makeda, I ended up needing to preach the gospel to, <laughs> to all who are here today. And so if there's anyone here today who hasn't turned their lives to Jesus, you must do so because God will judge you and exclude you from his kingdom to come if you don't. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us in our quest to be faithful to the scriptures and the gospel.
Father, even a portion of scripture like this from Joshua 10 stirs our hearts this morning because it speaks to us of your purposes in history and at the end of history to raise up a people who are holy and righteous, covered by the blood of Jesus, who are welcome in your presence, who won't come under the judgment of exclusion now or in the future. Lord, uh, we who know you were children of wrath and now we are children of light. And I pray for anyone here today who has not turned to you, to Jesus as Lord and Saviour, to God as Father and Holy Spirit as Comforter, that today might be a day when you would again prompt their hearts to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus. So we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for the church and we pray for your blessing on this community and your power and presence in its midst. May we be found faithful to you in our generation and evangelists for your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.